This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to an episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Liz Barrett, and I'm here today with Dr. Vanessa Wilkie, who is the William A. Moffat Curator of Medieval Manuscripts and British History at the Huntingdon um, in San Marino, California. However, uh, we are here today to discuss her forthcoming book, A Woman of Influence, the Spectacular Rise of Alice Spencer in Tudor England, which will be published in April 2023 by Atria Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Dr. Wilkie, welcome. Thank you. So first, let me just make sure, At- Atria or Atria? Am I am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> it's uh, Atria. I had to learn Atria. how to say it too. Atria, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. So um, before we get into your book, can you talk a bit about how you came to research Alice Spencer? Yeah, I, gosh, it's been so long now. Um, I met Alice when I was a graduate student uh, at UC Riverside. I was taking a research seminar class. I was, I had just started my PhD in early modern British history and didn't have an idea for a dissertation topic, but I, um, I had a background in gender studies and gender theory and history and political science. Um, so I was just kind of shopping around in classes about for a, a subject. And I read Cynthia Harrop's book, A House in Gross Disorder, which um, is such a phenomenal book. And really, uh, though people had known about the Castlehaven trials, Cynthia's work just really grounded it and gave it structure. Um, and so when I read that book, I thought I, you know, in, in consultation with my PhD advisor, I wanted to re-examine those trials from the Countess's perspective. Cynthia's work focuses a lot on um, the situation surrounding the Earl. Um, And when I started looking at the Countess of Castlehaven, I quickly came to realize that her mom is just always in the background, though she doesn't show up in the sources necessarily about the trial. In the aftermath of the trial, she shows up a lot. And I started wondering, like, who is this? woman kind of who I think is pulling the strings behind the scenes. And then I realized that to understand those trials and understand how the Countess made her way through it, 
um, I need to go back <laughs> in time. And that's when I started looking at Alice and started realizing all of the different lawsuits that she had been involved in. Um, and that like kept her, looking for her legal history is what pulled me back. And then I just was like, okay, hold on. I need to know everything about this woman to understand how she operates and how she you know, has this gravitational force in the world around her. Gravitational force is an excellent um, way to describe how she went through life, really. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so one thing I wanted to really point out um, specifically about your book, like so often when I read biographies, um, especially ones of the people from such a distant past, like the early modern period, um, it's it's really difficult to relate to them as people, mm-hmm. actual humans, right? Um, and rather than just a, you know a name and a date on a page and something that happened and leap, you know move on to the next sort of developmental uh, person in that line. So um, what's interesting though is that as much as you can kind of relate to Alice, there's certain aspects of her life that you can't relate to, mm-hmm. and I think. I mean, we can circle back to that, but the fallout from these Castlehaven trials and the treatment of her daughter and her granddaughter is a really sort of poignant example of the difficult world that she navigated in as as a woman of position. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to go back, one thing yeah. that your book, that you do in your book, which is really excellently done, is is contextualizing this world and seeing how like why she needed to move through it in the way that she did um and uh it it's kind of like can you talk about sorry just to jump yeah. through to this yeah. can you talk about her rise into society specifically which is how you kind of launch into how she finds her way into legal um disputes and through them but can you talk about her rise and why that piece is so important yeah i you know what something you just said is i think really um, was important to me in that in how I came to to Alice um, and then started following her through is that you know as a I was a graduate student I was studying history so I knew her world a lot better than I knew her and I think that helped so in in places where I couldn't find her um, especially in, in her rise her early rise is such a a void of sources about her you know I don't have voices I don't know her anything about her specifically from her childhood. Um, you know, the original marriage contract doesn't, hasn't seemed to survive um, for her first marriage, which is really how she starts this journey. Um, and so, you know, the first, the parts where she's really making her move or her family is making those initial moves on her behalf. There aren't any sources, but she seems so representative. There's so many other sources about other families doing very similar things. So it was easy enough easy is not the right word, but it was possible to, you know, understand, you know, here's what the norm was. I have no reason to believe she wasn't following that norm. Her family wasn't following that norm. So I could put her sort of on a, this escalator that was moving through a world that already existed in my, my mind and her rise. I mean, she was the youngest daughter of this family, the Spencer family, um, when they were really early on the rise. Um, so she grew up really on a, a lovely sheep farm uh, with a beautiful 
estate. And so the estate has a history and a pretty well-known history. The patriarchs of the family are well-documented and well-known. So it's a matter of like situating her in it. And as the youngest daughter, you know, it does, it's not surprising. She was just sort of like lost in the shuffle a little bit um, of the household and uh, really raised to, you know, aspire to marry and, you know, if she is happy, that's great, but it's sort of irrelevant because marriage at that for that status in that time was really about alliance building. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what she did. And so when the, those pieces kind of click together with her first marriage and the, the alliance between the Spencer family and the Stanley family takes shape, that's when I saw really Alice come into being was once she became married um, to Ferdinando, her husband. And then you know, the first, so it's like she took this big step into marriage and then it was like a plateau, I think, for her rise a little bit because she really had to learn how to live in this, you know, ancient family in this large medieval kind of estate in the north of England. She had left this farm and now she had this new station and she had to kind of learn how to take up space in that new space. And I think it was like a almost like a boot camp for her, like Countess boot camp, <laughs> um, <laughs> to learn how to manage an estate and learn how to someday. You know, she was married to the heir of the earldom, so she was going to have to learn how to be a countess. And I think that those early years of her marriage um, were just a critical education for her. Um, and then, of course, that's when she started having her children and her three daughters. I don't think you know you can't really. I can't see Alice without her daughters. Um, her her whole life was the relationship she had with her daughters and her extended family, um, which is super common for women in that period. Um, so she comes into even more focus once she becomes a mother, because um, that's when she really like becomes her whole self. I think. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think on one hand we talk about rise as like you know, ascending to a new title or accumulating more wealth or more land um, in feudal England. But, you know, Alice is a good reminder, I think, that for women, part of that rise means being a wife and being a mother, and you can't ascend to those higher levels um, without accomplishing those things as well and, like, learning how to do them really well. And she, she sure had a way about her with them. Yes. <laughs> Something about Alice. Yeah, um, exactly. The, the way you began the book with the sort of vignette of her going in to inspect her tomb and the things that she set store by. So, you know, you said you can't really separate Alice from her daughters and her daughters are there also mm-hmm. in, you know, encased in marble next to her and their heraldry is all there. And the things that she just chose to depict in her heraldry and the things that she left out in her heraldry are all really, really interesting. Um, and I really picked up from your description of how she, you know, learned how to navigate the world of being a wife as a countess Um as like, um, you know, women are so often seen in in that period of history and and beyond, and even coming, you know, into the twentieth century as sort of like pawns. And yeah. she seems to have like taken on the role of wife and mother as like a professional role, mm-hmm. and yeah. she was going to protect her career advancement. Mm-hmm. Um, and her position, um, you know, vigorously, 
Uh, And it's, it's great how you pull up the sources to show these ways in which she did protect it. And um, even, you know, to, to possibly the detriment of a few of, you know, a couple of her daughters. Um, So there was one thing you wrote. uh, Let me find it here. Yes. Uh, What money is in a modern capitalist society, land was in feudal Europe, and power came from controlling land as the source of everything, food, textiles, fuel, and rental income. Tensions grew between members of the old aristocracy and England's nouveau riche, and by the time Alice was a young girl, the Spencers had become a highly visible emblem of the rising gentry. Mm -hmm. And that right there kind of when I reflect on it, that's sort of the motivations for the things that she does. She has something to prove that she can come, she can be a woman. She can come from, um, you know, a family that's wealthy, but not titled and noble and, you know, mm-hmm. royal or anything like that. And still, you know, exert her power through, find, find her voice, find her power through the institutions that are already there. So mm-hmm. that was brilliant. Oh, brilliant. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, back to Alice's life, Mm -hmm. Uh, we know that she has to accumulate this impulse to accumulate more wealth and status um, is really, really, um, it it, it ends up being kind of sad that that she's so hyper-focused on that. Um, But going back to her first marriage, Mm -hmm. um, she has three daughters, and then there's this almost I don't want to say surreal it's definitely heartbreaking but the episode of Ferdinando Stanley's death yeah there's it's so interesting can you walk us through that oh my gosh it's chaotic um and it so it's hard to know because there's not like this smoking gun source that links the two together you know the the months before his death you know he was implicated in this plot to overthrow Queen Elizabeth who was his cousin, um, but he actually turned the plotters in um, and they were executed and he was exonerated. Um, And so it was like, it's hard to see his death without like almost thinking about this plot, the Hesketh plot is like foreshadowing because it was like this moment where everything could have fallen apart. They get through this, you know, he and Alice are working together to navigate that the dangers of being implicated in a plot like that. Um, and then they come out on the other side and it's like almost like you can feel this like sigh of relief like ah order is restored we're in good favor we possibly even in better favor with queen elizabeth because we've really proven our loyalty to her um so it's like it feels like that should be the end if it was a fairy tale they all lived happily ever after but it's just a matter of months that ferdinando um you know mysteriously gets quite ill and there's all these questions about whether he was poisoned um, or whether he was the victim of witchcraft uh, which you know for for you and I that seems you know kind of (laughs) fantastical but um, you know I think to understand their world is important to not like pass judgment on what they believed and they believe that witchcraft was real so it was real to them and you know Mm -hmm. you have to take that seriously um, in their lives. So when Ferdinando, like suddenly he's out horseback riding and then he comes home and he's, you know, you kind of picture him in this great hall, you know, 
fire. I don't know. In my mind, there's a fire roaring and he just starts to get dogs. There's dogs and it's a great day and he's feeling really good. And then he just starts to feel queasy. Um, And it's like this illness, you know, I think we've all maybe had those flus that just feel like you get hit by a train. Like it just comes out of nowhere and you feel the turn. And that's how the sources describe Fernando's health. Like one second he was great. And the next second he was just buckled over, um, Mm. you know, really, really ill. And, you know, things like those descriptions are so gross. (laughs) Um, They're so detailed about his illness, but you also like, I think when someone's suffering like that, it helps you feel their humanity a little bit because we all know what it feels like to really just have the flu and, and feel terrible. Um, and they start to worry because he's not, he, he's struck so quickly that it seems like this cannot just be a natural illness. This has to be some sort of supernatural demonic possession or um, poisoning. So Alice is frantic trying to calm her husband and they call for both a doctor um, and also a cunning woman in case it's poisoning or in case it's witchcraft. So they're like trying to cover their bases. Um, And the cunning woman gets there first and starts to treat him as if he had been um, poisoned by a curse. And, you know, so there's this like wax figure that she puts under the bed to try and pull the, the curse out of him. Um, and then the doctor shows up and they've already done all of these. Like they put plaster on his chest. They've given him enemas. They've made him consume all of these um, concoctions to try and drive to rebalance his humors because he's, he's so graphically sick. Um, and it's really hard to know whether the treatments killed him or <laughs> whether... Um, the illness killed him or if he was poisoned um we don't you know we don't know it's, it's hard. i don't know i don't think he was cursed um but you know he he to his like the moment of his death he was screaming out that he had been cursed and believed that he um was the victim of a foul play and so you know i just picture alice sitting there watching her whole world unravel um, as he's sinking deeper and deeper into the um, trance is what how the, the sources describe it. Um, and then, you know, she's at his deathbed when he dies and he gives her instructions. He's, he's dictated this will, but he gives her specific instructions about, you know, gifts that he wants bestowed to the doctor. Um, and the minute he dies, she just like pulls herself together and does executes his wishes. Um, and I think in that scene, it's not only tragic to think about Ferdinando's experience, but like Alice is just so helpless. And then like the minute he passes, it's like she becomes a different person. And she, it's like almost like she puts blinders on and she's got to be so focused on getting through it that she can't, um, you know, she can't feel a lot after that, I think. I see that. And of course you know, very tragically, she was pregnant at the time. And some of his will was sort of, um, you know, constructed in case that it was a male heir, because they'd already had three daughters. And if it was a female heir, what they would, your female, if it was a daughter, what they would do in that instance. (laughs) Um, And then she loses the child, which is extremely tragic. And you, you say, um, when you start setting out this episode, you say, uh, 
began with a nightmare. It started with an actual nightmare that Alice yeah. had, but the whole, it seems to be this continual uh, nightmare, um, not just after he dies and then she loses the baby, but the fight with her um, in-laws mm-hmm. afterwards, specifically her brother-in-law who um, contests everything. And that is sort of her real, you know, trial. Uh, yeah. To, for <laughs> you know as far as Absolutely. how she's how is she going to find her voice find her power maintain her position keep um you know protect her children and her interests in the future against the same family that you know um supported her to begin with so <laughs> can you walk us through that episode a little as well yeah i think you know back to your you know original question too about alice kind of her rise you know, she, uh, the, that, that inheritance lawsuit was like the next level or the, you know, the ascent for her to level up and, you know, her mm-hmm. marriage is where she learned how to be a countess, but it was in this phase of widowhood that she really learned how to be this dowager countess. And she learned how to navigate and think shrewdly about like, how do I make the law work for me? And you know, that's one of the things with Alice. And I think you really see that for the first time during this inheritance lawsuit, she's not a, you know, a trailblazer. She's not trying to sh- change laws. She's not an activist in any way. She's really like, how do I work within this system to keep my family together? And once she figures out how to do that, because she has to petition to get the wardships of her daughter. The laws are that um, because she was a single mom at that point, the state, and because her daughters were... Um, descendants of royalty, um, the state takes custody of her children. So the first order of business was get my kids back and mm-hmm. um, not physically, I mean, they were with her, but like get legal control over my daughters. So I think in part because, you know, that's what a mother would, would want from her heart, but also thinking shrewdly she needs control over her daughters so she can arrange their marriages because this is a world that operates on alliances and she needs to be able to pick who her kids, her daughters marry so she can bring in the right alliances to help her cause, which she, you know, does (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. to the nth degree. (laughs) Um, So, sorry. No, no, no. That's, yeah. So I think it's like these multiple phases. So phase one of her, um, the suit is for her, you know, how to make motherhood work to her advantage. And then phase motherhood and marriage, you know, work for her advantage. And Mm -hmm. then phase two is by the end of these trial of this inheritance suit, she's like petitioning the queen and taking um, ecclesiastical lands and getting leases. I mean, she is like a full on uh, what we today would call like a real estate power broker. She she understands she's like there's a steep learning curve here because the stakes are so high for her, but she really learns how to get control of the lands that she needs to keep her status. And she just petitions and relies on these networks that she's built and that her family, um, both her natal family, the Spencers, but also her alliances she's built through Ferdinando. You know, she just relies on them to help her procure land. And by, you know, thinking shrewdly about motherhood and land, she triumphs in this 
lawsuit and just really decimates her brother-in-law. Right. And it's interesting. So there's two, two kind of things that I wanted to ask about. So the first one is you, um, I don't have like the quotes or anything in front of me, but you mentioned her in-laws. Um, I think it was her mother-in-law who had some problems with the family. And I can't help but think that she kind of learned some way of how like what to do slash what not to do when you're dealing with uh, a family that you're you're struggling with from her mother-in-law I think that's really interesting I think that that's really true there's no sources that I've ever been able to find where Alice says anything about her mother-in-law so her her mother-in-law and father-in-law separated um while while Ferdinando was still alive and so her mother-in-law lived in London and her father-in-law lived up in the north. And then her mother-in-law ends up in prison for a little while. Um, and because she was trying to decide, you know, she was casting astrological charts to see how long Queen Elizabeth would live. And obviously we're not allowed to, not do, supposed that. to do that. Not no. supposed to do that. Um, so she ends up in jail for a little while. Um, so I think, you know, it's hard for me. This is total speculation. I'm, I don't have sources for this, but it's hard for me to imagine that Alice had a really good relationship with her mother-in-law. I think she was close to her father-in-law and he was the one that really influenced her and, and showed her um, how to navigate, how to be a countess, he, uh, how to run an estate. Um, she didn't learn that from her mother-in-law. Um, so I think if anything, she... There's this personal aspect where they just weren't that close. And if anything, her mother-in-law was a real threat to Alice's stability. Um, after, especially after Ferdinando died, because her fear is like, great, now, you know, one of the people I'm closest to at court is this criminal who's casting astrological charts. I, like, I want to distance myself from that. Um, so I think she saw her as kind of a cautionary tale, but also as a liability for her own reputation. Mm-hmm. And that's very important as well. I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, the other, the other part is who she marries that helps her navigate this. So let's see how smart she is. Tell us, tell us who she marries. So why. smart. <laughs> she marries <laughs> Thomas Edgerton, the um, the keeper of the Great Seal, who of for Queen Elizabeth, who basically at that time he didn't have the title, but he essentially ran the chancery courts. Um, he ran the equitable courts. So in England at this time, there's these parallel legal systems. Um, and so common law was based on precedent. And then equitable law was a recognition. And the equitable courts really started to expand in the 16th period, the 16th century, the scope of them. They started to recognize there are moments where precedent isn't enough. There's too much of a gray area, especially in inheritance lawsuits. Um, so a lot of widows wanted their their trials to happen in equitable courts because they would um, they kind of worked within a gray area, and a lot of you know people like her brother-in-law, the you know the heirs wanted um, trials to happen in common law courts. Common law was extremely patriarchal um, and restrictive for women, so most women wanted their cases to be heard in equitable courts because equitable. It's not that they weren't patriarchal, they absolutely were patriarchal, but they didn't necessarily have the codified laws against women that common law courts had. So Alice marries the head of the equitable courts, and then she marries her middle daughter, Frances, to his son. So it's like this 
palette, which is, you know, like soap opera extraordinaire. <laughs> um, but they, you know, it's all because it makes her lawsuit and which is in a sense Francis's lawsuit, it makes them Thomas and John's lawsuit as well. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting at the helm of these courts and they can decide like, yep, weirdly, we have decided, the court has decided that the hearings will take place in the equitable courts and suddenly Alice has like the home court advantage, like almost literally the home court advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant, especially if you're you're talking about a woman who's navigating this patriarchal world um, in order to, you know, layer the uh, vested interest of her husband in ha- helping her navigate this, especially with his heir, you know, <laughs> helping out her, one of her daughters and Mary, you know, like just layering the interest upon interest was a, a brilliant move on her part. But um, sadly, it didn't really end up in sort of, you know, they lived happily ever after, even <laughs> though it did, you know, she did have home court advantage and she did ultimately win her suit. So can you yeah. tell us about this, this wrinkle? Oh, yeah, they were super unhappy. Well, I shouldn't say they, I don't think Alice cared that much. I mean, (laughs) her marriage is her, you know, she's an interesting um, and helpful person to see this world through because she, she, there's nothing ever where she was talking about expecting to have a love match or to, to love her husband. There's unquestionably there was fondness between her and Ferdinando. But after that first marriage, I don't know that she cared about you know, having this, you know, personally satisfying second marriage, she cared about stabilizing the family and continuing the rise. So she was just, you know, throwing money around and living this big flashy lifestyle that she could pay for. Um, and Ellesmere, well, he, he becomes Lord Chancellor Ellesmere. So I was calling him Ellesmere. Um, <laughs> Ellesmere is, you know, he's a, a kind of a quiet, humble, curmudgeon studious lawyer. And he does not like the flashiness of it. He does, you know, he does not think his household needs 40 servants to attend to a woman and her three daughters. Um, you know, she arrives at his, his home with this like entourage and he just has no patience for it. So you know, I think he was really sad and miserable in that marriage, but I think she did not care. If anything, it was like a huge success for her, you know, so. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that also because of her position um, and because of, you know, going back to that first quote where we talk about, um, you know, the, the nouveau riche, right? Mm-hmm. She had an interest in always presenting herself as this countess that has the entourage. Like that's, that's woven into her identity. And if Absolutely. she didn't have that, then I think that she would feel that loss of power really keenly and not be able to function necessarily in the way that she, that she did. I mean, just trying to think about what I would do if I was, if I was Alice Spencer, right. You know, I would yeah. be like, okay, well I have to keep showing people how, how rich and, and powerful and what a countess I am. And this is, these are the trappings of being a countess. Yep. And so you deal with it, you know, yep. <laughs> deal with exactly. It. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, in fact, 
but it, her her father-in-law her first father-in-law um the fourth earl of derby you know he quite famously it's really well documented he was one of the only earls um, in the, in the late elizabethan reign that maintained this enormous household by that time everybody else's all the other earls household was much smaller it was um, you know people spent a lot more time in london and you know the so Almost if you think of like Nosley, which is where Alice and Latham, which is the north where Alice first learned, you know, she was lived with Ferdinando. And you think about Nosley and Latham being like university for her. Um, mm-hmm. She was brought up, it, you know, trained. Her education was you keep a giant household. This is how you show status. And it was a super medieval, outmoded way of demonstrating status. But it's what Alice had been taught to do. So when she moved to London or you know just outside of London and she married Ellesmere she's like what are you talking about this is how you this is what countesses do you have these huge entourages um, and mm-hmm. in a way it was really interesting because I think for Alice it actually because she was as you said nouveau riche uh, having this kind of medieval style household gave her the appearance of being older money than she actually was and it's because she inherited that from marrying into a very old money family. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously old money, new money is our, the way we would describe it today. It's not the term right. they use, but, um, you know, so I think she kind of said, oh, I'm new money. I've married into old money. I'm using both lifestyles to my advantage as, you know, as fit. Mm-hmm. She's relentless. Um, she was totally relentless. <laughs> She was relentless. And I mean, I think like, again, going back to, you know, if you put your, if you try to relate to this woman who, um, not to spoil it, but who died several hundred years ago, <laughs> she died. I mean, you know, how would you, yeah, <laughs> how would you navigate that? You know, like, and, and again, going back to, you know, aspects of, uh, medieval life. I mean, she's very much buried in a way that continued on through the middle, you know, the, the early modern period, but a very medieval way of, of displaying, you know, um, like a conspicuous display of your life yep. through the effigy of your death, um, which is super interesting to see how she bridges that time period and how she pulls from the practices of the past to establish herself in the present of her time and in, in, shows us what it was like to try to navigate that. So um, moving on from Alice a little bit, um, <laughs> let's talk about uh, her daughters and their marriages, yeah. the first first marriages before we go yeah. into the salacious <laughs> the Castlehaven. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, she has the, these three daughters, Anne, Francis, and Elizabeth. Um, and Anne, Anne marries, Anne is such a, a question mark. Uh, there's so few sources that I think survive about her in, in her life in general, uh, which is weird because she's the eldest and the, it's easier to find the younger daughters in this case than it is to find the, the oldest. Um, but Anne marries into a, a stable and, um, you know, pretty a family with good reputation. She marries into the Bridges family. They're the, the barons of Chondos. Um, she moves to... The countryside, she seems to set up a, you know, a stable household where there's a lot of local patronage and her husband in particular is well celebrated by poets and, um, he likes writing. He's, he's, you know, kind of the quintessential Renaissance man. Um, 
and it for all accounts they I mean, there are very few accounts but they seem like a you know happy stable couple she has children she you know she spends time with her mother she travels around um you know it seems all all good um francis as you said marries um marries her stepbrother <laughs> um, <laughs> oops oops <laughs> um so Frances marries her stepbrother. Frances's life is really, truly defined by pregnancy. She's pregnant 15 times. She has 11 children that survive, um, at least for some period of time. They don't all survive into adulthood, but um, you know, some of them die quite young. Um, but, you know, if you think about how many years of your life as a especially because there's a lying in chamber, you know, you're not out and about until the day you give birth. In if you're an aristocratic woman in the 17th century, um, so you know most of Francis's life is confined to the home because she's, you know, always in the childbed. Um, mm-hmm. But she also was an avid reader, a major patroness. Her husband was a huge power player. Um, in the in the courts of King James and King Charles, um, so in a way they're kind of also a premier aristocratic family. Um, but personally, her her life is defined by childbirth and and literacy and building this library that she builds. Um, I mean, amassing this quantity of books, she doesn't you know build a public library. She builds a private library. Um, and then her the youngest daughter Elizabeth marries into another you know, extremely well-established family, the Hastings family, the Earls of Huntingdon. Um, she sets up shop in the Midlands and also is really quite famous for cultivating relationships with poets and playwrights and theologians. She patronizes a school near her. She spends a lot of time in London doing political liaising for her husband who doesn't like going into London. He likes the countryside. Um, so she's really uh, kind of a mover and a shaker. And it seems, you know, there's a certain point in time, I think, like in the, the 1610s and 16 teens, where I kind of picture Alice, you know, living at Harefield, which is her estate in, in Middlesex outside of London, and, you know, having her daughters and her grandchildren come in and out. And it's not like she's the doting, loving, sweet grandma. She's you know, always a schemer. But I think there's probably these like 20 years where she feels like I have done right by my daughters. The network is growing. The dynasty is growing. Everyone's married to safe, stable people. And they're all doing exactly what I've taught them to do, which is patronize poets, patronize theologians, be a good landlord, take care of your tenants. Um, you know, expand your political network and keep investing in, um, you know, educating, whether it's through school or through um, housewifery and training, training daughters how to do estate management. But like, I think there's like this 20 year period where Alice is like, I have, I'm doing my job, my daughters are doing their job, we're good. And Mm -hmm. then Anne's husband dies, and everything goes off the, the rails. It falls apart. Um, Yeah. So Anne's husband dies. And then before, so it's a little bit gray. So she doesn't immediately um, marry Castlehaven, but 
um, Alice takes custody of her yeah. son. So yeah. walk Both me through that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is an example where, from from what I can tell in reading the wider literature and looking at other sources, like the primary sources, this is weird. This is not a normal thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a it's strange, like if you think back to the way Alice navigated when Ferdinando died, her first order of business was, you know, get the custody of my daughters, keep them close to me. So there's something that I, we don't know what it is, what drives this, but rather than helping Anne secure her own custody of her children, Alice swoops in and takes custody of Anne's heirs. Um, it leads me to believe, and this com- this is totally unsubstantiated, but I've always sort of felt that perhaps there was some sort of situation with Anne that made her, um, made Alice think she might be unfit for um, total control of her, her own life. Um, and Anne marries much later than her sisters do, and then you would expect her to, um, you know, compared to what the norm is for women of her station. So, and mm-hmm. Anne's life never seems like, because it, it's such a question mark because we don't have any sources, but there's always been a something with Anne that seems like she's lived quite differently than the rest mm-hmm. of her her family. Um, so for whatever reason, we don't know what it is, Alice questions Anne's ability to manage her heirs. Um, and it's really telling because Anne also has daughters, younger daughters, and Alice doesn't want them. She doesn't take custody of her daughter. She only takes custody of the heir uh, and her, his brother. Yeah. Right. Which, and that's, it's so, it's so interesting because when I was thinking that through, I was wondering, you know, why wasn't it that Anne was the one who married her stepbrother instead of Francis, yeah. you know, yeah. um, why, you know, was there something sort of in the relationship um, between um, Alice and Anne that, you know, led to Anne being a bit of a rebel against, you know, what her mother wanted. And I kept, I keep thinking of like, you know, like first, middle, youngest child syndromes, you know, like what, like (laughs) about their society, which is, you know, again, a a different country to our literally (laughs) and figuratively than what we're living in right now. So psychologically, you know, there's different motivators and different um, things, but at the same time, like there's certain things that are always true. And, and I do wonder, you know, when you think about um, how, how these women saw their way through it, like what, what was it that about Anne that pushed her in these different directions? And then what made Alice take custody of her heirs, which is the people that she would want to protect for dynasty. And you flag things like um, the really controlling um, aspects of Alice's personality that are starting to show in this. Um, and, but ultimately I suppose it, it was a really astute move on Alice's part. Um, because when Anne does choose a second husband, it's spectacularly bad. Yeah. And it, with Alice, I think this is a moment, you know, in the first part of her life, you can see her well in her marriage to Ellesmere you see her as cruel. Like she, she mocks him. She's not nice to him. Um, there's tons of accounts about how Alice is like, you know, there's a newsletter when she marries Ellesmere that's like, you know, give God grant him good luck with her. Um, 
so she's got this reputation for just being, you know, a hellion. Um, but it's easy to say she it was personal between the two of them. But then when Anne's husband dies and Alice comes in and takes her her son away, you start to kind of think like, is this a is this a personality trait? Is she really um, that that shrewd and that cool that she could leave her granddaughters to whatever fate you know awaits them? But she's really focused just on the money and just on the sons. And so you know, mm-hmm. it's it's when she takes custody that you really start to think something is not either something's not right between Anne and Alice's relationship, but also. Alice might really be this niece. She mm-hmm. she might really be this calculating, um, and it turns out she is just that company. Right. Um, and then Anne goes on to marry a man called Mervyn Tuchet, who is the second Earl of Castlehaven. And he's much younger than she is, um, and he probably was a Catholic, um, and his family had been and his siblings had been in all kinds of trouble with the king King Charles at that point. Um, and so there's a big question, like, what is she doing? Why would she marry even on paper? Why would she marry this <laughs> man? Is she really going out with him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have no answers. I mean, Cynthia her, in her book, A House and Ghost Disorder kind of, you know, follows the money a little bit and says Castlehaven gives Anne some financial stability and points, you know, she did all of the legwork on this study and said Anne had this big inheritance from her mother's lawsuit with, um, you know, her brother-in-law, but, but all that money seems to be gone by the 1620s. So probably it suggests that Anne and her husband um, mismanaged the estate and so she mm-hmm. probably was in some financial trouble. Um, she, but she had some money. So then, when you start to look at, you know, what happens later, you realize that Castlehaven is a monster. Um, I have no idea why she married him, but we also know, like historically and contemporarily, you know, people make bad and dangerous choices um, for do. all kinds of they reasons. Do. Yeah. Plus, yeah. he's an earl, and I know. think rising yeah. like, and there's the discussion of you know, so his earldom is based in Ireland, which comes with its own set of problems socially in that period, mm-hmm. but um, and that seems to be one of um Alice's objections, but at the same time, Anne might think, well, you know, an earl is an earl that makes me a countess, which yep. puts me on par with my mother. And that and her sisters be, at that point. Too. And exactly yeah. that, that might be one sort of like defiant act in that way. Or maybe, you know, Castlehaven um, just wooed her really well. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we can't know, but um, yeah. what ensues is truly terrible. Um, yeah. And it's complicated by the fact that Anne, you know, in this case, she follows in her mother's footsteps is she chooses to marry her daughter to her stepson. So yes. now the Castlehaven, the family, they're like really intertwined with Anne's mm-hmm. family. And that, I mean, that is because of the horror that happens later. That complicates things a lot too. But I also think that is, and we 
there's not sources about this, but the way that Alice responds to things later, it also seems like Anne's decision to marry her daughter, um, also called Elizabeth, gets really confusing all of these, <laughs> all of these Elizabeths. Um, but Anne's decision to do that, um, you know, on one hand, it would be like, oh, she's doing what her mother, the example her mother set when Francis married her stepbrother. But Alice is mad about it all the way through. Like, why? Why are you continuing to tighten the alliances we have with this horrible family? Like, you're just making mistake after mistake. Mm-hmm. And so Alice, I think, really distances herself and tells, you know, she writes, there's not a ton of sources, but she writes this one letter to Francis and says, like, if I die um, soon, move all of my stuff. I'm building this house. So, you know, out in the countryside so that if I die, the Earl of Castlehaven can't, like, get his hands on any of my stuff. I don't want him inheriting anything. Uh-huh. And it's like in the mm-hmm. 1620s, she says that. Like, as soon as they get married, she doesn't like him. And she thinks mm-hmm. he's a money grabber. And, yeah. I mean, but I think she, I, I want to believe that no one had any idea how bad it was actually going to become. Yeah. There's also kind of that um, idea, you know, she herself, we've said it before, as like a nouveau riche, newly entering in society, is immediately suspect of what, you know, an Irish earldom, which is also, you know, fairly new. So it's like, why would you align with something that is not going to further establish us as like a landed old, old, you know, family um so I understand I understand that objection I mean you know love is love but there, there's no indication that between Castlehaven and Anne love was the motivator you know oh, no. <laughs> and certainly it didn't um it doesn't look like uh there was ever any love really there so uh let's no. get into the Castlehaven episode yeah so I mean from the get-go there's all kinds of it's like impossible to separate the rumor uh, in their relationship from um, the reality to a certain extent. There's all kinds of rumors that from the beginning of their marriage, Anne was carrying on extramarital affairs. There's no question that Castlehaven was also having extramarital affairs, but also that wasn't really a problem. It, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's not a problem until it becomes a problem, I guess. It wasn't a problem for them, I should say. Um, and so then, you know, the real trouble begins when um, Castlehaven starts to push one of his kind of um, his favorite, like his clerk, a, a man who works for him um, in a high position in the household, starts to push him to start having uh, sexual relationships with Elizabeth, Anne's daughter, Castlehaven stepdaughter slash daughter-in-law um and she's a she's a minor she's she's way too young she's like 13 years old yeah yeah um and and she's married uh, but she it's possible that they were married and not she and her husband hadn't consummated the marriage if she was menstruating then they probably which she might have been as a, a 13 year old um they then they would have consummated the marriage but you know, she's still a minor. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so Castlehaven, like, really manipulates her and makes her 
uh, feel like, and he tells her, if you do not have sex with this man, I'm going to throw you out of my household. And so she does. Um, and then over time, her stories change a bit. Like first it was that she resisted. And then it's that she, you know, was carrying on this relationship with this older man that was paying attention to her. But, you know, in a way, it doesn't really matter what she's saying. She was still a minor. She was a child. And she, exactly. yeah, it's so it's, you know, I care about her feelings and her perception of the world. And I, you know, um, but it's not her fault and she shouldn't have been put in that position to, mm-hmm. I mean, it was abuse. She was fully abused. And then Castle Haven actually um, starts to sit in the room and watch the abuse happen. And household servants are talking about this. Like it's kind of the worst kept secret in, in the house. Um, and as all of this is going on, it's really unclear if what Anne knew about and what she didn't or what at some point she did find out about this because her daughter in court testimony, um, or in the, the, um, when the investigators come and they start interviewing, she says, my mom knew about what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not clear when or how long she had known about it. Um, or if she tried to intervene, which according to the interviews, it didn't sound like she did. Um, and so then the story gets even more awful because so all throughout their marriage, you know, they're carrying on probably these extramarital affairs. But Castle Haven wants to start watching Anne have sex with other men. And she and he's picking the men he wants her to sleep with. And she doesn't want to do it. And, you know, says no and goes about her business. Um, and then one night, he and one of his servants orchestrate this sexual assault of, of Anne while uh, they were asleep. And she woke up and she was assaulted. Um, and that throws everything into chaos. Uh, the mm-hmm. the rumors are just flying so wildly, and then her son-in-law um, invites the privy counselor, the the monarch's like closest and most ha- powerful counsel, to send investigators to the house because he thinks that his father is um, squandering his inheritance. Um, and so, the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> the iceberg. And so when he invites all of these investigators in, you know, they're getting these wild, inconsistent stories. And then, but they just, they write and say this, something is wrong in this household. This is, um, not, even if these stories are half true, this is not, something is really dangerous here. So their first order of business is they break up the household and they send Elizabeth to live with someone and they send Anne to live with someone and they arrest Castlehaven and they're just interviewing and interviewing um, to try and get to the bottom of what had actually happened. And then ultimately through their investigations, they conclude that there was enough to charge the Earl of Castlehaven with and some of the servants with uh, both rape and also Castlehaven was carrying on extramarital affairs with men um, and engaging in sodomy, which was a crime at the, in that period. And so he was charged with sodomy as well. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes, you know, today we use this phrase, the trial of the century. It becomes the trial of the century. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. people in France are talking about it. 
Um, it shows up in newsletters on the European continent. Um, people just cannot believe that an earl is being tried publicly for sodomy, but also that he could be tried for rape when the victim was his wife. Um, right. Marital rape was not a crime then. I mean, legally. Yeah. And they, and, and it seems like he tries to, uh, I guess I could say, worm his way out of certain implicating aspects of the sodomy part by saying, yeah. um, I think between him and, and Skipwith and the other servant, there was uh, some talk yeah. about, well, you know, penetration never actually happened. And then it was the question of uh, was seed spilled or not spilled, which, you know, brings in all kinds of questions about, you know, where, where is sex, where is rape, where is, you know, um, it was, it, it was really fascinating. I, so I really think that if it hadn't been for, you know, the subsequent um, English Civil War, which eclipsed as far as trial of the century, the regicide is a really big one, um, (laughs) that, you know, this might be more, I think, brought into, you know, um, interview. I mean, there's plenty of people that don't know um, anything about the English Civil War, but uh, this is so so salacious i mean i was gasping as i was reading this like i couldn't believe the things that actually um happened and uh, poor elizabeth um i mean yeah. j- just to be put in that position and and be a child and not really or or a young woman but yeah. still a child and developmentally um whether she was developmentally there physically i mean mentally you know understanding about how the brain development works it, yeah. it's not you know, it's well into your twenties. So, you know, like all the things I didn't know, I mean, they're dealing with humoral theory at this point, but at the same time, like it's difficult to, to not sort of really feel empathy for Elizabeth as a, as a a victim over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and she has no say in the aftermath either her mother or her, you know, her mother has no say Alice is like, you're going to get it together and you're going to go back and you're going to live with your husband and you're going to put all this behind you. And both he of them are her. like, absolutely not. I'm never going back to that house. I'm never like, are you crazy? And right. I mean, and e- even if she yeah. wanted to, he wouldn't, he wouldn't accept her. Yeah. But that it goes back to like, I think the, the, the way that um, Castle Haven gets her to comply with his wishes is by saying, Oh, you know, he's mean to you. He doesn't like you and her feeling that insecurity. And I mean, gosh, it's, really really ugly and um i mean you see it in stories now it's just um it's it's heartbreaking it's abuse at every level and then it also Mm -hmm. i mean he he knows what he's doing and he's manipulating when he's telling a 13 year old girl your your husband doesn't love you so you're either going to do what i want or i'm going to you know kick you out of the house It's, it's horrific he was saying that he wanted an heir and he didn't care where it came from. So yeah. it might as well be from his favorite servant, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, which I guess, you know, as the the son, her husband, um, he had to complain about something. And so it came about through his complaint. I mean, I get, you know, he probably wanted to stop whatever was happening and take his own power from his father, who was yeah. egregious on so many levels. But um, yeah. Gosh, it just, I mean, I think I probably will read that chapter over and over again to just try to, <laughs> try to 
let it like in the first instance it washes over you and then you try to process everything that happened and then you try to think about like oh it's heartbreaking um yeah and and the thing with the you know the son James who writes and invites the privy council in and right he the motivation is he doesn't want he wants the heir to be his not the fact that his wife is sleeping with this other Mm -hmm. man even though she's being abused by him um and so because it starts off as an inheritance suit it really does when I was writing the book and doing the research, I really went back and forth about it because I, and I, I landed in a place where I think that he knew that bad things were happening with Elizabeth, with his wife, but I, or to his wife, um, he probably blamed her for it. Um, but I don't think he really understood the scale of what was going on because the laws of the land were if Castle Haven was found guilty of a criminal offense, the whole estate would be consumed by the crown and James would lose all of the inheritance anyway. So I think he thought he was, you know, bringing up this financial matter to the state mm-hmm. and did not have, it, it just got out of his hands so quickly because what was happening was so, um, so criminal. Mm-hmm. And so he mm-hmm. really ended up putting the estate in jeopardy without realizing that he was doing it by inviting the council. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, thank goodness he did because the estate was unsafe, but um, mm-hmm. the household was unsafe for people. But I, I don't think that that was his intention. And in his later correspondence to his father, when his father's in prison, he, you know, kind of apologizes for it. So she's an awful man, but like, this is not what he meant to have happen, mm-hmm. which you know, mm-hmm. makes him really suspect too. Every, I mean, it, it, the whole situation is just so fraught and awful. Right. Yeah. Um. So he is found guilty of all Castle Haven's found guilty, and he yep. goes to Tower Hill. Yep. Um. And his head is he's hung. Or his head is separated from his body. Right. He's he, beheaded. Yeah. He's executed. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's he's beheaded. Yeah. Because the king says that's nicer because he's an earl instead of being hung, mm-hmm. which would be a, a cruel way to die. He's beheaded because it will happen faster and there will be less physical pain for him. And there was a whole bunch of petitioning and letters about this, too, which way he should. One die. of them is from his sister, who mm-hmm. is kind of like, I don't know if foils the right word, but she <laughs> it sets herself up as the nemesis of Alice and the family. So yeah. tell me about the sister. Um, so the sister, he has a couple sisters who write, who write this letter, but the sister you're talking about is Eleanor Davies Douglas, um, who is, aside from her relationship, you know, being the sister of the Earl of Castlehaven, um, she's most famous because she starts in the 16 teens and 20s. She starts publishing these wild prophecies about um, King <laughs> King Charles. Actually, so it's the 1620s. She starts publishing these prophecies about his reign. She thinks that um, <laughs> I don't want to call her crazy, but she's really hard to follow. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. She thinks the end of the world is coming soon because the King of England is misbehaving. Um, the the state is unstable, religion is unstable, women are acting like men, men are acting like women. Um, she talks in these these pamphlets that she publishes um, about biblical prophets coming to see her and giving her like revelations about the future of the realm. 
the, what she's printing is banned in England. So she has them printed on the continent and then smuggled in to, I mean, she, mm-hmm. she ends up in jail. She, she breaks into the Litchfield Cathedral and she pours tar all over the altar. Um, she ends up in Bedlam Mental Hospital for a little while. Um, so she's just this fantastical figure. And unfortunately, she wants to Alice, burn it all down. She wants to burn it all down. <laughs> um she i mean she needs a book of her own too yes Um, and she is uh because the web has to be complicated her daughter is married to alice's grandson on another side of the family Mm -hmm. uh, from the youngest daughter and they had been alice and her daughter elizabeth had sued this woman eleanor because she never paid the marriage settlement so they'd already been to court with her and won um, and then the next decade they are back in court with castle haven for this other it, they just it, it's a small world of atrocity yes. <laughs> yes yes um her character eleanor davies douglas was really fascinating um and i couldn't help but think like for all like i i didn't go into the sources and try to read her pamphlets but i might have to do that at some point but um she's not really wrong in a sense like that the world that they were inhabiting was about to burn down you know and she's like pointing to these issues and and feeding this you know uh political or like sort of i don't want to call it pop culture at the time but something <laughs> like what pop culture yeah. would be yeah she's feeding this um and uh uh that i thought that was really um really something you know um yeah yeah she sees so, the outcome of the castlehaven trials the fact that anne wins that castlehaven is found guilty of particularly of the rape charge um she eleanor publishes these pamphlets saying like that this is another example where like how could a wife accuse her husband of this and how could a state find an earl guilty of of this and so this is like it it was personal it was her family she was talking about but she was using it as an example of like we're getting closer to the apocalypse because now wives can accuse their husband of anything and they'll get executed like she actually was using this family tragedy is an example of the end of the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and publishing these tracks in london saying all of this or circulating london right. saying all of this yeah yeah you should, i that recommend was... reading them they're they're bonkers <laughs> <laughs> yes i love to read bonkers stuff that's, <laughs> that's the best <laughs> okay so um so not that things resolve after Castlehaven, because how do you come back from a scandal like that? But Alice does her best. And sadly, we hinted at this in the beginning. One of those things that she does to claw back legitimacy is to really distance herself from that um, side of the family, from her daughter, Anne, and especially mm-hmm. from uh, her granddaughter, Elizabeth. Yep. Um, so can we talk about that period as well? Yeah, that phrase, I wish I had written that in the book that she claws back. Which I mean, that's exactly right. That's exactly what she does. Um, So Alice starts um, wildly petitioning. She writes all of these letters to King Charles and to um, his secretaries, basically saying, you have to give royal pardons to my daughter and my granddaughter for their involvement in this. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it is just the, you know, what she writes in the letter really blames them for. I mean, this is victim shaming. This is Alice victim, victim yeah. shaming her daughter and her granddaughter um, and saying you have to give them pardons or we will never get past this. And they will apologize in court for their wicked um, ways. I think she calls them wicked. Um, and ultimately the king does grant both of them royal pardons for, you know, infidelity is what a lot it, it boils down to, um, which is disturbing um, on many levels, but is what, it, you know, on the ground, what they do need to say, like, our family has been forgiven for mm-hmm. this and we just need to go about our business. And then Alice and her family throw a huge party. <laughs> um, and John Milton writes an entertainment for yes. them. And they all dress up and they dance and there's feasts and, you know. Yes. It, yeah, this is, it's, it, it, it seems hard to imagine, but this is the way that she always saves space or rebuilds after Mm -hmm. something you distract with a grand renaissance party um, with the entertainment written by John Milton. Right. Yes. Who was a up and coming um, poet or writer at the time. Um, uh, Also earlier, there's an episode where um, Edmund Spencer Mm -hmm. uh, writes about her and refers to, they must have been um, associated the Spencer families at some point. Um, And then there's sort of the establishment uh, just to pull out a few other sort of extraneous themes that you bring up. So the Isle of Man and sort of the idea of uh, her being uh, like a rural queen or a queen without sort of that um, and how she kind of takes on that persona in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, um, but still well, well underneath and sort of, you know, the hierarchy of, of um, English court. um, Right. Where she finds herself, but she still really seems to identify with the idea of being the rural queen. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All um, Arcadia hath not seen. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so after this great party, um, what I'm trying to remember what year that was. So she has a, her big party is sometime in 1632, 1633, right after the Castlehaven trial, right after the mm-hmm. the pardon had been issued, and then she sets up um, Elizabeth uh, in a, a household. She sets up Anne. And a household. So she pays, she gives them a place to stay. She gives them, um, you know, the allowance to live, but on the agreement that they live these quiet, secluded lives. Um, mm-hmm. And then they really don't know what happens to them after that. I think Anne really does say she, she resurfaces in the historical record only once after all of this because she signs a marriage agreement for her youngest daughter to somebody. Um, so she negotiates or, or Alice does, or somebody does. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact date. Alice might have passed away by then, but, um, Anne does show up and, in, in her daughter secures this marriage. Um, but then you never, we never see her again. We know when she dies, we know she dies. She lives a really long time. She dies in 1647. So she makes it through mm-hmm. most of the Civil War, which I can't imagine what that experience. If I ever wrote historical fiction, I'd want to write something like that. Um, oh my gosh. But yeah, she lives 
uh, quiet. Uh, she lives outside the historical record after. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alice just continues on to do what Alice does. She's lining up marriages for her grandchildren. And then her son-in-law slash stepson, um, the Earl of Bridgewater, gets this high political appointment by King Charles. And the family throws another big party um, in 1634 in Milton Wright's The Entertainment for that. Um, so Alice's family is, you know, really living large. And then mm-hmm. um, her daughter Elizabeth passes away. Um, probably we think of uterine cancer um, mm. in the 1630s. And then a couple years later, Francis passes away. Um, don't, we don't know why, probably sickness and illness of some, some kind. And Alice outlives both of them. Um, and mostly is resides at Harefield during that period mm-hmm. and still has her grandchildren. Some of her grandchildren live with her. She's, you know, still lining up their marriages. And um, then she starts to build her own tomb and write a will. And then she actually adds a codicil to that will shortly after she writes it. Um, so she really starts to get her affairs in order. And then she mm-hmm. dies in January of 1637. And it's... Um, like a hush falls over the crowd kind of thing. Right. Because yeah. I mean, she was just the sort of, you know, omnipresent uh, entity in that sphere mm-hmm. um, and, you know, pulling all these strings and having all this, this power and, and the way that she controlled everybody. I mean, it must've been like kind of a vacuum almost when she was gone, because what do we do without, um, you know, Granny Alice, like <laughs> she, exactly. she's gone now. So how, how on we, earth do I make decisions sure? for myself? But yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you have to imagine that might have, that might have been how some of her grandchildren um, possibly felt, especially the ones that were maintained and, um, you know, nurtured like at her, at her feet, I guess, yeah. uh, in a way. Yeah. She, I mean, her will, um, it's pretty extensive and she lines up a lot of um, financial stability for the grandchildren that she was really invested in. She had uh, one granddaughter who lived with her for a really long time and she leaves her an enormous amount of money for a, a dowry. And she does ultimately get married um, and I'm sure uses a dowry um, to do so. And she makes arrangements for, she names Anne's son that she took custody of she names him as her primary heir um, so, and arranges a marriage for him which is um, weirdly tied to the Castlehaven trials as well um, so I mean she's just pulling strings until the the bitter end um, and well, her, but I mean cold yeah. dead hands yeah. let them go <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> And then, you know, she orchestrates in her will. She explains exactly the kind of funeral that she wants. Um, she commissions, which, you know, is not really surprising now that we all, we've seen her life. Of course, she orchestrates her, her death as well. Um, and her tomb is enormous and it's still standing today in the church in Harefield. And it just dominates everything. Like when you walk in, it's just, it's huge. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, yeah, I mean, it's, she did her job. Yeah. She, I mean, she did you it get... with, you know, she's not nice. <laughs> she's, she's not a, love, a loving person necessarily, but she did her job. 
she found i think you know the the having this huge tomb and her will and the control that she exerted over everyone you you get the sense that that's how she learned to best um have her power and her wishes um you know to to execute what she wanted in life was to take control in in this really obsessive way yeah. um and to to have this you know conspicuous display all the time yep. even in death even you yeah, know hundreds yeah. of years after she's dead and it's still there and we can go yep. and see it or look online and um <laughs> i i will try when I, i'll have to get back to the uk at some point and i'll have to go follow yeah. you at the end um you write this lovely sort of um end to alice's story which is you know if you take the bus and then you yeah. go and you you go you, you get off at a certain point and you walk and you can trace like the 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 name of the road and the is it Dowager Road or Countess, it's Countess Lane Close. or yeah. Countess <laughs> yeah. Close. <laughs> yep. Um and the um the apartments that are convert the converted apartments that are in mm-hmm. um the the, the um, charity house yep. that she built. All houses, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's great to know that, um, I guess, in a sense that, you know, we can still celebrate in, in a way, even now, you know, people are still living in, in the, in the material part of the material world that she constructed, and yeah. can still go and see and, and appreciate the art of that time, because she decided to celebrate her own life with an effigy in this sense with her daughters. Um, yeah. And to think through like feminist history in that way. Um so uh, I really, I really enjoyed the book. And, oh, um, you. I, you know, is there anything else you'd like to add? Because I just, I want to empower you to. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the only thing, gosh, you, you just, I, I'm, I think you might know a lot of this better, <laughs> know the book better than I do. It sounds like, in oh, some no. cases. but it, it, to add that, you know, at the end of her life, the way you describe it is exactly, you know, right. This conspicuous display in life and in death. Um, it's, it's concise and beautifully articulated that way. Um, and it, the, the thing I would add to that is that, you know, it's so easy. And she is just such a controlling, power-hungry person. But it's really hard to know. I, you know, I'm sure she got personal satisfaction out of this. But it always seems like her justification was, I'm doing this for the family. I'm doing this. Like, it wasn't, it, I don't know that, I don't think she was motivated exclusively for herself. I don't think she was selfish. I think she was cruel and um, callous, but I think always, and even in her tomb, it is all about the Spencer, the rise of the Spencer family, their elevation, and to put them on the same level, you know, in the 1630s with the Stanley family, um, both families obviously still are around um, mm. and, and thriving in and the in UK, the news and in the news <laughs> in their own ways. Um, so the, obviously, and it's not like, you know, a lot happens in the, the 400 years following. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like a straight trajectory by any means, but you know, for Alice, you just, for her personally, I think, as I said, maybe you can't not separate, you can't separate her from her daughters, but by the end of her life too, I think you can't separate her from this wider kin network. And it was all about this dynasty that she was, was helping to elevate. So it's, you know, there was, I'm sure, personal satisfaction and ego in it. But I think, like, truly to her dying day, she believed she was doing this for the family, not mm-hmm. for herself. And her tune mm-hmm. shows that, too. And, you know, her patronage and Harefield, 
um, is meant to reflect that too. It's personal, but it's also like dynasty building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, there's still, like I said, so many lessons, I think, and things that are still relevant today, whether we kind of can allow ourselves to see that or not, but especially just going back briefly to the way that she petitioned for the Royal pardons by, you know, victim shaming, victim blaming, which was the way, and it worked. The, the, yeah. the thing is, is not, it's not so, it, it's not really shocking to know that that's what she did when you see that that's what worked. That's what yeah. actually got the pardons. And that's, and that's still kind of, you know, part of our culture now yeah. um, as, you know, like sort of the inheritors of so many British aspects of life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just, uh, one more time, if I didn't say it enough, I thought this was a great book. Uh, oh, I really enjoyed you. reading it. Um, and I can't wait to see it out in the world in April, 2023. Yeah. So a woman of influence by Dr. Vanessa Wilkie. Thank you Thanks. so much for talking with me. Thank you. This is so much fun. I appreciate it.